Welcome to another episode of the... You fucked me up that time. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Magoo podcast, where we magoo your review with a hoodaloo. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. I like your background lighting, by the way. It's very uh, mysterious, very Radio X. Yeah, it's just your typical bisexual lighting that you see in every streamer vid okay i actually was gonna bring this up on the podcast a year ago or a year or so ago Mm -hmm. i had never heard of bisexual lighting until like fairly recently is that a thing like that's a thing yeah here's the thing as as someone who identifies as a a a cis straight male okay the LGBTQ community can't have everything fun, <laughs> right? Like, I enjoy pink and blue neon lighting. Yeah, I don't think it actually has anything to do with one's sexuality. It's just the term for a lighting scheme. The, those those particular colors, purple, pink, and blue, look pleasing to the eye, and it became kind of a cliché that video streamers on Twitch especially were using that scheme for a long time. So it's a And then it just so happens that there were a lot of them who were LBGT defined. Okay. Especially in like the YouTube space like Red Tube and Left Tube who started using the same lighting scheme and then I think that's when it became known as bisexual lighting, but that's just my guess. I've never actually looked into the no, I like I said, but, I, it, to me, it seemed like it came out of nowhere. And I was like, OK, sure. <laughs> and just in case people are wondering, we have been playing around with video more. We are recording this <laughs> yes. on a video. So we we technically don't have any video up yet uh, since we started doing this. But I'm working on getting video edited and getting it online and you know, setting up a YouTube channel. Uh, hopefully we'll start uh, streaming at some point. So little by little, we're building up to it. But I did buy some pink and blue lights for my room. On this episode, we're going to be talking about Bo is Afraid, the new Ari Aster film, which is in theaters. And at the end of the episode for the streaming homework, we're going to be talking about the 1997 Spanish film, Open Your Eyes. Uh, which is the film that was remade a couple years later by Cameron Crowe as Vanilla Sky. Yes. But before we get into that, so by accident, um, because we were never quite sure what movie we're going to do that week until like Friday or so, because Mm -hmm. living in two different areas, we have to make sure we can see the same movies or we're going to see something that's streaming, blah, blah, blah. So... Sometimes we get these happy accidents where our movies sort of align. Yeah. And I thought, you know, 
we have two movies that are sort of psychological dramas of some sort, a mind freak, if you will. So I sent you. <laughs> Is that trademarked though? <laughs> <laughs> is Chris think, Angel going to come after us? Is he going to float from the Luxor and be like, I am the mind freak? I was just trying to think of the polite way of saying mind fuck. And I, I probably so was he. We have two mind fucks that we're talking about today on the show. So I wanted to do a segment of three of our top mind fuck experiences watching a movie, whether it was in theaters or at home or whatever. Mm. I left it kind of broad, left it kind of open. It doesn't have to be a twist ending. However you define mindfuck. Yes. And then if I disagree with you, I'll just uh, yell at you instead. I don't think that I have any that could not be categorized as mindfucks. We'll just go back and forth here. What are, what's your first mind freak? Uh, the first one I want to mention is... I think my favorite mind fuck in in recent history, and that is uh, "Sorry to Bother You" by Boots okay. Riley. Just a, it was not at all what I expected it to be. Uh, I mean, you get the premise of the trailer within like the first twenty minutes, and mm -hmm. then it becomes this whole other thing. Um, this whole other kind of metaphor for slavery and the black experience in America. And it's, sure. it's fucking crazy, but it's also very, very funny. I, I liked this movie a lot because it plays that surrealism a lot for humor. And sometimes I am not the biggest fan of movies that don't necessarily have a linear story. Um, I mean, we've talked about some of them on in the past. Uh, I, I like a, it doesn't have to be like so straightforward. It hurts. Like I don't need them to hold my hand through the whole thing, but I do. I'm, I'm not a just vibes guy in general. Uh, and I feel like okay. sometimes when it gets into the more surreal, that's more what we're talking about, right? But I think, sorry to bother you, manages this tightrope of having very surreal, uh, absurdist humor, but still telling a fairly linear story. It just takes these sort of crazy turns that I never saw coming. Yeah, turns of the metaphorical into the literal. Yeah. Which I think usually... When it comes to surrealism, you can go either way on that, mm -hmm. where uh, a lot of times people will take the literal and make it metaphorical. And that's usually the type of movies that are a little bit more confusing or take some decoding mm -hmm. um, or multiple watches. Whereas a movie like Sorry to Bother You, which is using comedy to to sort of push forward a lot of its bigger themes about uh, capitalism and and uh gentrification yeah gentrification. i was gonna say capitalism but specifically american capitalism yeah late stage capitalism mm -hmm. um and uh and then and delving into that uh through you know wild imagery and wild turns of events so yeah, yeah i thought about that movie on um compiling this list but 
Uh, I went another way. I'm okay. going to start my list with a 2014 film starring uh, Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss called The One I Love. Did you ever see it? No, but I can picture the poster in my head. They're in the pool, they're like painting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very good. Um, I like the movie a lot, and I will not say too much about it because I think it is a movie that the less you know, the better it is when you're watching it. I, In general, I think most of these movies probably are because, you know, they're mind fucks, right? Like, yeah, they are meant to make us think about things in a different way or to open our brains. And, you know, like they are at best sort of these ultimate artistic expressions. So I, I think in general, all of these movies are probably best viewed with fairly fresh eyes. Sure. Uh, so the premise being that they're a, a married couple who go on a vacation to find the spark in their relationship again. They they find this vacation home that has a pool and a pool house, and then weird stuff starts happening, you know, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. It, it deals with identity. It deals with... Um, rediscovering the the person you want to be in a relationship versus the person you are and the person you want in a relationship versus the person you met um and the the fantasy versus the uh the day-to-day -day reality of growing with somebody and it deals with all the larger metaphors in a bizarre kaleidoscopic sort of way Okay. Uh, but it, it's it's pretty funny. I wouldn't call it a comedy per se, but the comedy sort of comes from the matter of fact approach to how wild the story gets. And but there's kind of an eerie quality to it, too. It's sort of unsettling. Um, okay. It's just really smart, good filmmaking and two very good actors uh, doing their some of their best work together. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll have to check that one out. Uh, I'm going to go with another fairly recent one. I think, you know, if, if anything, the last 20 years have been pretty good to experimental filmmakers because I think you can do a lot more with a smaller budget now than you could in like the 60s or 70s. Um, uh, I, this was one we reviewed on this podcast, uh, The Lighthouse. Okay, I yeah. Think Total mindfuck. Um, I think it's it does the thing I like with a mindfuck where it tells a linear story, but you it's very easy to lose track of what becomes fantasy and what becomes reality. When we're in this kind of realm of movie, that's when I tend to get a little bit lost is when it's like everything becomes so abstract that there isn't a cogent story anymore. Um, and I, I think this movie avoids that very nicely. It's stylish as hell. And you know, it, it's, that's what it's about. It's about losing this grip with reality. And I think it was also sort of like the first COVID movie before COVID. Right. The idea of being sort of, uh, locked up in close quarters with somebody. 
Yeah, and I I think I think in a weird way that was probably made people more aware of the movie was because it came out right before COVID. I don't think it was like a huge commercial success, but I remember hearing people talking about a lot more once the world was kind of on lockdown. It's I mean, it definitely was one of those movies where people caught up with it later. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like with The Witch, um, that was more of a, a theatrical success. Like there was more people championing it early on. And people are still catching up with it as well, but it's, but uh, that one I felt like it kind of had a steady thing. Whereas with the lighthouse, either people didn't love it when it first came out, and so just didn't bother talking about it, or they didn't see it until they were scrolling around and they're like, "Oh, I heard things about this." Yeah, and then they I, well, I they watched it, was, it. I think it was more of a cultural thing, just because like all of a sudden. He's portraying this experience that is very relatable about, you know, kind of losing your mind through isolation. Losing a sense of time. Yeah, just all yeah. of that. I, I I I remember I we saw it, we reviewed it, and then after the or during the pandemic, I kind of thought about it a lot. Interesting it was that it came out when it did. And a lot of surrealist imagery, a lot of um, this kind of blending of fantasy and horror, um, you know, in this descent into madness, all stuff I'm very into. Okay, uh, the second one I have listed on my shortlist here is the film Holy Motors, which is a bizarre experience <laughs> it's oh, what year did that come out 2011 i want to say uh, 2012. uh 2012 yes and this was by uh, leos carax and it's sort of exploration of character and genre and narrative for its own sake it's um there's not really a single narrative drive to the movie you're sort of almost experiencing these short vignettes that the uh lead actor takes place in and every time he goes to a new setting he becomes this other character and like wears an entirely different costume and carries himself a completely different way puts on an entirely different performance from scene to scene and then the the movie around him sort of changes into a different type of movie. Like at one point he does a green screen battle with like lightsaber looking things and, and a sensor suit. And then in the next scene, all of a sudden Kylie Minogue comes out and becomes a musical sequence. And then it moves mm-hmm. on from there. So it's just, it's a bizarre freak out uh, cinematic experience. So I I have never seen this movie. I don't know what you're Mm -hmm. talking about, but I immediately thought of there's this um, there was this show on Netflix called The Characters, right, where they would take character comedians and each one of them would get like just their own basically pilot episode. Right. Um, It's it's actually uh, I think where I think you should leave kind of came out of. So Tim Robinson had his own episode, 
but there was this one that was not the funniest, but it was definitely the most um, interesting. It, it was, I think the comedian's name was Doc Brown or something like that. Um, and he just what like you the guy who built the DeLorean time machine. I think that's where his <laughs> name comes from, obviously. Okay. But um, but he would he would do one sketch, and then he his character was like the focal point of each sketch, and then he would just walk into the next sketch, um, and it almost had like this Darren Aronofsky like follow cam quality to it. Um, but in each sketch, he would like you would see him put on the costumes and stuff. I don't know. I don't know if this is any relevance to what you're talking about. That's just what you reminded me of. Yeah, I don't know. I I I have not seen what you're talking about, so I can't uh, corroborate. But yeah, um, Holy Motors is a it's a wholly unique film experience. It's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, um, especially if you're looking for a coherent narrative because it's not there. But it's more just a celebration of film and genre tropes through a lot of in-camera quick decision-making. And there's a lot of like single-take stuff in that where they'll follow him in from one set to the other and then they'll turn the camera quickly and all of a sudden everything in the background has changed into something else. And then the, the story shifts again. So, Okay, my last one isn't a singular film, but it's a director. Uh, this might be sure. kind of cheating, um, but I felt like my last slot I want to give to David Lynch because he's the first director that I think I really experienced that broke all these rules of cinema. Um, uh, I, I think the first of which I saw was probably Mulholland Drive, which has been so long. I want to revisit. I feel like I could. I haven't watched it, I think, since the first time I watched it. Uh, Lost Highway, Eraserhead. Like, I haven't seen Inland Empire yet. I've heard it's kind of the one that will can make or break you with <laughs> David Lynch uh, in some ways. Um, but he's just... I think as a director, he's always been one of the most interesting in that he is not interested in really commercial viability at all. It is it is artistic e expression and uh, first and foremost. And uh, every time I've seen one of these David Lynch movies that pushes those boundaries, I'm always I always kind of walk away from it going, what the fuck did I just watch? But but also kind of getting it, kind of maybe vibing it more than anything. Um, yeah. So I just felt like my relationship with him as a director, uh, I would give him a specific shout out. Um, even sure. though some of these movies I haven't seen in a while, like I want to revisit Lost Highway. I I want I need to see Inland Empire. Yeah, I, you know, had him in a in my short list is, you know, just sort of David Lynch at all. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. Like, how do you pick just one? Well, I mean, he's been such a major influence on a specific kind of filmmaking. And of course he takes his influence from people before him, whether yeah, it be, absolutely. Uh, you know, Kubrick, Hitchcock, uh, Boonwell, 
Um, there's lots of people he's, yeah, that he's looking up to, but the way he synthesizes that into this sort of specifically American sensibility, Mm -hmm. uh, like middle American sensibility. And I, you know, it's funny you say has no interest in commercial viability. I think he does actually. I think, I think he is, I don't ever think he's trying to outsmart the audience. That's not what I mean when I say he's not interested in, in uh, what I mean is he's going to make the movie he's going to make and he, he doesn't right. give a, f- but, but yes, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think he's trying to outsmart anybody. I think he's trying to get people to come to the table, but. And, and I think he's genuine. I think he's genuine in the sense that he, he, he doesn't understand why his movies are so confusing. <laughs> like. I think, you know, there's a genuine outsiderness to his sure. his worldview, his point of view. That he's, when he watches the genres that he's really into, whether it be, you know, film noir, horror, whatever, the thing that he's sort of struck by is the the dream imagery, the mm-hmm. the 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 paranoia of those of those genres. And he taps into that first. Yeah. And then finds the story and the imagery and the characters through that that lens. Well, and, and and to a certain extent, that is the story, right? The the story yeah. is a feeling. It it with when we're talking about Lynch at his most Lynch, uh, the story isn't isn't plot at all. It's it's this feeling. It's this this essence. And that's a lot harder to define. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's why his movies are a lot harder to define is because they don't work in the linear sense that we're trained with. Right. Like everybody. Right. Everybody inherently understands story. Uh, but especially within a Western sensibility, we're sort of trained with this kind of Campbellian uh linear thing right even if it's an indie story even if it's not you know a, a sort of adventure tale it's kind of ingrained on us um and i think that's that's why even though his stuff doesn't always his stuff is always challenging and i think that's what i uh, uh appreciate about it yeah and and even the movies of his that i don't love there is powerful sequences or imagery or or even uh, just a, a, a performances like, or yeah even if it's just a moment even if it's just mm-hmm. a, an exchange between two characters there's always a presence but behind everything even if like you right. said the, even if the movie as a whole doesn't work every moment means something to him and he's fully invested into it and i right. i appreciate that there's for him, there's no filler. Everything means something, even if it, it, the audience has a hard time finding it. Um, the last one I have on my list is uh, David Fincher's Gone Girl. Okay. Now, a lot of people would have probably said Fight Club because that has like the twist, you know, the big twist. Yeah, no. Twist a Rooney. I, I think I'm more with you on this, and maybe it's just an age thing. Um, but I also think there's a sophistication to Gone Girl that Fight Club doesn't. I'm not gonna say doesn't have because I think 
Fight Club's a good movie despite its fans. But there's this thing with Gone Girl that I get. Like, it it sort of just keeps unfolding. Right, and it's based on a book, and and I feel like there is a a literary quality to the screenplay. I, I, I like the way that that movie is sort of bifurcated mm-hmm. and it builds this entire story in your head. Like yeah. it is, it's using all the, it's cinematic language and what we know about David Fincher as a director, what we know about, you know, what he's allowing us to know about these characters and then flips a script on us for the whole second half of the movie. So it's not just a oh. twist. It's it's an entire play on expectations and gender roles, and and then there's a twist on that twist. Like that that's what I mean when yeah. it, it kind of keeps unfolding. Is it, it is it, it plays? It's almost playful with the idea of a movie twist because right. it, it, it's kind of introduced in the second act, and then you're like, well, where the fuck does the is does the movie go from here? And then it keeps going and keeps evolving. Certainly a Hitchcockian quality to that. There is to a lot of his work. Uh, you know, that one in particular, you know, your icy blonde mystery woman and sort of subverting the the uh, noir hero cop archi- archetype oh. and and even subverting the notions of uh, procedural thrillers. Sure. Th- there were several what the fuck moments for me in that movie. And, yeah. and each one of them, uh, like there's still, I'm, I have a pretty bad memory when it comes to media. Like, you know, I'll see a thing and then it's, it, I'll kind of remember how I felt about it and forget a lot of details. And there are certain elements of that movie that are just like burned into my brain. Sure. Um, so that is the last that I have on my list. Uh, there were some other movies I could have put on there. I did think about the uh, Bergman film, which is a direct influence on stuff like Mulholland Drive, a single white female, you know, a lot of movies along those lines mm. of the blending of identity between, uh, you know, two female characters and uh Bergman kind of did it first did it best maybe um and uh there is a movie by Almodovar uh called The Skin I Live In which was my first Almodovar film and I don't want to say too much about it because I think it'll play a little bit into our review of uh Open Your Eyes Okay. Because um, both of those movies are similar, not just because they're both Spanish movies um, dealing in plastic surgery, but, you know, that as well. Those are a couple other mind freaks that came to mind. Yeah, um, I, I want to give a couple shout outs as well, uh, just real quick um, to movie Enemy, uh, early movie by Denis Villeneuve. It's fairly narrative in its story sense, but it has this interesting nightmarish imagery sort of spliced in um in in some interesting ways that one kind of we reviewed that one a while ago a few years ago um and that one kind of stuck to my ribs um titane um 
which we talk also there's an episode that one's probably a little easier to find because that was like our main review of the episode also i think does some very interesting uh sort of blending of surrealism and and um uh and i also want to give a shout out to uh memento which I think is a really cool mindfuck of a movie because it's kind of engineered backwards and it has some some pretty cool twists and turns into it. And uh, just from a storytelling perspective, I think is is doing something maybe a little bit different than a lot of these other uh, mindfucks. So. Um, all right, let's get into it, I guess. Let's talk about Bo is Afraid. Bo played by Joaquin Phoenix. He is this, you know, aging, codependent man-child, very anxious, very uh, sort of wears his his mental health on his sleeve. He lives in this, you know, scary neighborhood, tenement, this city area that's wrought with crime um, that just sort of is feeding into his constant anxiety. He has this plan to visit his mother, but... Things don't work out when he believes somebody stole the keys to his apartment. And uh, then through a sort of escalating um, scenario, ends up having full-blown panic attack after he finds out that his mother has died, which leads him on this epic odyssey to get back home in time for the funeral and uh, stuff happens. Sure does. Stuff happens for about three hours. She's very pretty. Is that the type of girl you're attracted to? I am so sorry for what your daddy passed down to you. I wanted a child. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Do you ever wish that she was dead? What? <laughs> Bo? Are you on your way? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? I sincerely doubt that. I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. <laughs> this is the third film from Ari Aster. Uh, Ari Asher had made uh, Hereditary and Midsummer. Um, okay, uh, but, but before we get too far into this, before we really get too far into it, um, I do want to go on record that I am very pro directors fucking around and figuring shit out, right? And I, I think especially when we're sort of looking at directors of this caliber, right? Where the marketing material is largely, this is the guy who gave us Midsommar and this is the guy who gave us Hereditary. I think it is it is harder for studios to sort of take a, a risk on a, a project like this that is a little less traditional, right? And, and like there was that thing on Twitter, it was like, you know, uh, of these three directors, Robert Eggers, Jordan Peele, Ari Aster, uh, you know, they're, they're both these sort of, they're all three seen as these sort of auteur directors in the realm of horror. Uh, they all recently had 
these third movies come out. Um, yeah, I do want to say I am pro experimentation. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was just you know setting it up to say that um, you know both of those movies, uh, Midsummer and and uh, Hereditary, are more traditionally Absolutely. genre films. You know, yeah. Hereditary. Even though at the time when the movie came out and people were like, you know, your diehard gorehounds were like, that's not a horror film. That's just a family drama. Blah, blah. It's a horror film. Yeah. And the, and the <laughs> but whole, in every sense of the word. And the, the, the definition, you know, the, the term elevated horror started coming out around that time. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Specifically around the movies that those directors were making. Specifically mm -hmm. around uh, the projects coming out of A twenty four, but yeah, you know that that movies a both movies deal in the occult, deal in uh, unwanton murder. Yeah, um, fairly traditional. They're very linear. They're very. These are your characters. These are the things that are happening to them. Yeah, this movie is a bit of a harder sell. You know, I, I see people calling it a comedy, and I think I am less inclined to agree with that than I am calling Hereditary a horror film. Like, oh, to interesting. Me, Hereditary is very much a horror film. There's funny parts, uh, Bo is afraid. But I, and I, I, I guess that you could call this, like, Broadly speaking, a black comedy or a dark comedy, it's playing around in sort of the the psyche of one point of view, yes, and so I, doing so strictly, like it, we're 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 never outside of Bo's mind. As far as we know, there is no outside of Bo's mind. The movie doesn't seem to make the distinction of a real world and what is perceived. And I think some people, maybe myself included, have a bit of a difficulty sort of untangling those things or trying to find a a useful tether to what's being presented at us. I think the movie's actually challenging us to take everything at face value. So I think, yes, it's obvious that the movie is made to make you feel anxious and it's about anxiety and it's about a person dealing with anxiety and he's trying to put us in that headspace. But I also don't think he's saying like these things aren't happening, you know, like these bizarre events that, that go through the film. I think. Yeah. For, for, from the audience perspective, it seems like, these things are happening. Like, it seems mm -hmm. like this is literally the, just the sort of the world he lives in. And there's never really sort of a breaking point. Like you said, where we see outside of that, it's pretty consistent throughout. I mean, this is essentially uh courage, the cowardly dog as writ large. Yeah. So, th uh, you know, actually that drama. description maybe makes me like it a little bit more. <laughs> um, but I always had a weird relationship with Courage the Cowardly Dog. 
if it helps your definition, I, I remember when he when Ari Aster was working on this, he actively described it as a horror comedy. Like he was like, yeah, my next movie is going to be this like three hour long horror comedy epic. And I was right. like, okay, whatever the fuck that means. But I guess now I know what that means. And, and he also called Midsummer a relationship film. So which, he, which to an extent it is. It is, but I, he's also being playful. Absolutely. And and he likes to tease his audience and he has a sort of sense of humor about his own work, especially something like this, which he's a smart guy and he's pretty grounded dude. So he he knows this is challenging. And that this is a tough sell. This is this belongs in a category of film that I, in general, bristle against, which is Kafka esque. Okay. Yeah. 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 So there's a bunch of these type of movies, and every time I see one, but I don't you love it, Naked Lunch? I do, but that day, well, I I don't love Naked Lunch. Okay. I, I, okay. I, All right. I appreciate Naked Lunch. Um, but that's about as far... Which is, isn't that literally based on a Kafka story? Or uh, No, that's William S. Burroughs. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's sure. borrowing a lot from Kafka. Yes. Um, in the in the, that book. But that's about as, as far as I go with that. Like, there's, you know, whenever I see a movie that kind of deals in its subject matter this sort of way, it's like the... The metaphor is literal and this mm-hmm. sort of, um, you know, person living in a world that's where everything is antagonistic against them throughout the course of the film. And the situation just keeps getting worse and worse and worse for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost kind of feels like the director is the eight-year-old boy pulling the wings off the fly in the back. <laughs> You know, just to see what it what it does. Yeah, there, uh, there's something a little punishing about it. Like th- yeah. it's almost like ha ha ha. You, like jokes on you for seeing this. Not not to the audience, to the character. Sometimes well, I think it's to the audience, and I don't think that necessarily with this movie. But there have been movies that I've seen where it's like, oh, you're actively antagonizing the audience. I think yeah. there are moments that this movie does that. Hmm. But yeah, so, as a whole, I I think, uh, I I think he is playing around with a lot of stuff. Not all of it sticks. I would agree, and I think there's so much here that just by sheer number of minutes on screen, you're going to end up with some stuff that sticks and some that doesn't. It's the balance of that that I struggle with. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. first of all, I'm going to say I think that Ari Aster definitely made the movie he wanted to make. I don't feel like this is a compromised piece of work. I, I almost think to a fault. Yes, I would agree. I think this movie is in desperate need of an editor. So there's a number of movies that kind of play like this. Uh, and I'll, I'll just list them really fast before we get, get into everything else. There was a movie that was uh, directly... Um, taken from a Kafka text called The Trial that Orson Welles made uh, with Anthony Perkins. And that movie I actually like, and I think has a lot of style. And it, you know, it, it plays around with the uh, 
the world of bureaucracy and he's, you know, he, he knows he's in trouble and he, but then nobody will tell him what he did. And he, so he's running around these office and, you know, there's all of these, you know, uh, papers he they keep piling up on his desk. So, you know, kind of give you the idea of what this genre is in its source. Um, but then, you know, there was a movie, uh, High Rise that I think we mm-hmm. did not very long ago, or, I mean, it's been a few years, but yeah. we did as a, as a homework. I think it came um, out like 2015 or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's and, a newer, yeah. With, uh, starring Tom Hiddleston. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the Luke Evans. Yeah. Right. And that, that was a movie I, I did, didn't love. For the same reasons, um, there was a another movie called The Double with Jesse Eisenberg, where he mm. runs into a, a doppelganger version of himself and the hijinks play out. Well, um, uh, the movie I mentioned earlier, Enemy, I think is, is yeah. kind of Kafka-esque. Yeah, I, I think that that one breathes a lot more and there, there's, there's an air of mystery that kind well, of and keeps... it, it's a simpler story, right? Like it's yeah. it's it's this kind of neo noir, uh, you know, where a guy runs into this guy, this double, this guy who looks exactly like him, um, and you know, by the end of it, you're just sort of not sure how much of that is internalized and how much is literal, and it it leaves some questions, um, but it, it's a little cleaner. Yeah, and shorter. Well, yeah, I, I, and I think that's a big, big part of my hangups with this movie is it feels like it, it feels like it just gives in to every indulgence, right? Like I feel like for the first forty-five minutes to an hour, I was pretty into it. Uh, it, it has this, you know, when he's sort of living in this uh, anxiety-ridden. Uh, it, it almost just feels like an NPC living in a Verhoeven Detroit kind of thing. <laughs> it's just like it's so chaotic. It's so scary. And and I think that's where for me, uh, all the, the comedy is most successful. Right. Is is this anxiety is taken to this absurd level and it's pretty funny um you you can see it's very tonguing in cheek it's drawing attention to the absurdity of this anxiety and even like sort of once the adventure kind of starts i'm you know i'm pretty with this movie um the the sequence with um yeah amy ryan i'm still like like oh okay this is a shift um but I still feel like narratively the movie is is working more than it's not. Yeah, no, there's definitely a a point where it it can't sustain its own weight. Yeah. And you know, the beams that are holding it up start to bend under the pressure of of sheer volume of stuff that he's throwing at us. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm with you. That first act in the the apartment I was into, mm-hmm. even though like I don't I still feel kind of a antagonism towards the character in a way that I don't love, especially given like, you know, what we've seen from Hereditary and mm-hmm. Midsummer, which 
even though those movies are brutal, he has genuine sympathy for those characters. And you feel when they feel. In this movie, Bo is pathetic. And we're, it, I don't, I think we're almost supposed to be joining in with, with laughing at him. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I, to me, I just felt like he's a little less. Again, I got a lot of Verhoeven out of the first act, but I, I don't know if he necessarily has the. Um, well, in Verhoeven, there's a social critique in here. Yes. You, there, it doesn't feel like that. I, I, I felt more. Actually, I love that first act reminded me a lot of Barton Fink, which could also sort of fit in this genre. Sure. But I think is a much more successful version of it. I actually, it did not click in my head until you just mentioned it. Cause again, it's been a long time since I've seen that one, but I think you're absolutely correct. I, I feel like Barton Fink is sort of the, the more successful version of what this movie's trying to. Yeah. Say. And it, I mean, there's been a lot of movies that have kind of played around in this stuff that have done it at varying quality, but the second act with Nathan Lane and, and Amy Ryan yeah, I was still in it, mostly because of Nathan Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan. Oh my god! Like how it's just a, a a breath of fresh air when Nathan Lane walks in with the sweater vest and he's just this hey, oh shucks, sport. yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> backyard grilling dad, and then they happen to have a raving psychopath living in a trailer in the back for no well, reason. Well, I, I mean, they also have a raving psychopath living in their house with the the for daughter. daughter. Oh, well, she's more daughter, of a, yeah. probably, I guess, a sociopath. But um, <laughs> but but yeah. It, it, and here's the thing: I feel like there's enough there, right? And there's these hints within this chunk of something sort of more sinister going on uh, with Nathan Lane and with Amy Ryan. And the movie, like you said, it sort of collapses under its own weight of being this needing to be this sort of uh, odyssey journey, right? Like, like, well, we've got to get to the next set piece. So this movie sort of lays out these clues that sort of never come to fruition they kind of do. They kind of don't. Like, I mean, the movie. The movie is just. It's very episodic, just by the nature of what it is. And sure. as we're yeah. sort of moving along with Bo, and he's discovering more and more. You know, we we get into these other segments of the film, and I, to me, by the time we get to that animated sequence, that's yeah. when I was starting mm-hmm. to feel it. I was like, okay, movie, like where are we going? Because we're at like. Two and a half hours now, and it wasn't. You're talking about like the the play in the forest and and stuff, right? Right, right, and then the, him kind of becoming part of the play, and then yeah. also it sort of playing out as this idealized version of this life he could have lived, or maybe it's the life his father lived. We're never quite sure exactly. Maybe he is his father. We're never quite sure exactly. Um, yeah, I I agree. This was. I think it was about the almost the same moment that just started to lose me that it was like, okay. Yeah, the movie starts what getting What is the very, point of this? The and, movie and started this getting very the, lofty. And and for me, what it came down to when I walked out of the theater with mm-hmm. a migraine is that everything that this movie is trying to say, it's all said in that 
first scene where he's uh, talking to his psychiatrist. Yeah, but not in it's a way. It's all laid out. It's all right there. And, and it doesn't matter how b- bigger mm-hmm. or grander it gets or how much, you know, how much more is more they try and put on it and how, you know, we go into his childhood, we go into this m- mysterious death of his father, we go into all of these other things. But really, it's just three hours of this Oedipus complex thing mm-hmm. played out in all of these different scenarios well, over and, and over and over again. And that's and, when I kind of felt like, mm-hmm. oh, this movie's actually not as smart as it thinks it is. Yes. Well, here's the thing. I During that sequence, the like the play sequence, I almost feel like he's making fun of the movie he's making because the like within that there's, there's jokes. Like there are jokes. Okay. This is funny. And then it like keeps going. It's just so self-indulgent that at that point I'm just sort of beat down. And then the movie still goes for another like 45 minutes after that point. Like I, I doubt that right. sequence is as long as it felt like in our minds. No, because yeah, I don't think it was. It, it but it, it, you know, once once we get to the point where uh, Parker Posey's character comes in mm-hmm. and uh, Patty Lapone shows up. Um, by the way, this cast is just amazing. Yeah, and everyone's giving a plus performances throughout. Absolutely. Um, and I feel almost bad. For Parker Posey and Patty Lapone, that they are the last on the bill here because I, I don't. We're so kind of exhausted by the movie at that point that I can't even fully invest in the work that they're putting in. See, so this is where I, I think I'll disagree with you a little bit because they win me back. This whole they almost do. They almost do until that final uh, scene, and then. By that point, I'm I'm just like well, okay. so that that's that's what I'm getting at is that's they, when I realized that final scene in the auditorium or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, the, the whole movie's in the first scene. The whole movie is well, just and, explicating what they already said in five minutes. Well, and here's the thing: there there have been movies that do that before, right? Where they lay out the whole plot and then it, it sort of plays everything out. So I I don't necessarily have issue with that. My issue is that the movie doesn't have anything new to say with that, right? So there's this whole extended sequence in the forest. It's fucking weird and crazy. And then the third act wins me back completely. I'm like, okay, here, at least we're with a movie again, right? There's, There's stuff with Parker Posey. There's stuff with Patti Lapone. It's funny. It's sinister. It's weird. Um, I'm like, okay, I we're back to at least it being a movie. And then it keeps going from there. And I'm like, just give us a resolution. Just it, which I get. That's not how therapy works. It's not how this works. And that's the problem with this is it's not, it, it ends up not really being a movie. It ends up being a therapy session. And, that's, I think, the problem. It it becomes 
by the end of it, it becomes just totally self-indulgent. I, I was hoping that through all of that, especially given the length, that he was going to pull it in. He was going to have some this ultimate statement, this this perfect ending at least that was going to tie it all right? up. Yeah, and I'm not saying explain everything. I don't need that. No, 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 but I no. mean just something, you know, that where when the credits come in, I I feel like I got the full experience, what I was supposed to be getting out of it. Yeah. And instead, I just left exhausted. Which, like it was work. This movie was work. Yeah. Which I think is the point, but that also sucks. <laughs> um <laughs> No, I I know. Yeah, I don't need mean. every movie to be entertain entertainment. I don't need well, every movie to movie be. This movie has solid chunks that are very entertaining. Like that's For sure. Yeah, that's that's I think why this is so perplexing is on the one hand, I think Ari Aster does have that pop sensibility of of knowing. I think he knows what's entertaining. I think I think he's a keen enough writer and filmmaker that he, he, you know, he has his finger on that pulse. And I think that's why when this movie's frustrating, it feels personal. It feels like it feels intentionally like I, I get what you want out of this, but I'm going to pull the rug out from under your feet every, at every opportunity. It feels like it, it's purposely antagonistic to the audience. It, I don't. I I suspect that if you went to Ari Aster and you said, "Find forty minutes to cut from this, and we can actually release this thing," he would argue with you till he's blue in the face that it is all very necessary, and that he would he would tell you exactly why every scene is supposed to be there. Sure, I that but, doesn't mean it's not intentionally riling people up. I I think that is part of the point of it. No, yeah, I mean he, it. Like I said, he's being playful. Um, and, uh, you know, to put it in uh, slightly different terms, this movie's got tracks. Sure. But it doesn't, it's not a cohesive album. It's not, it's not a, a. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree you know, with this that. Is, like, this is like the equivalent of the, that period of time in the late nineties and early two thousands when everyone had to release a double album for some reason, and they could have easily just found the best six songs from each made. Yeah, one. This is the, the stadium arcadium of Ari Aster. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I mean, I walked out of the movie theater with sort of my jaw agape saying, what the fuck did I just watch? And it's been a while since I've had a movie do that to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, like mentally and emotionally just go, what the fuck was that? And so I, I think that's why I came down, like wanted to be clear at the beginning that I am pro experimentation, uh, mm -hmm. it's, especially when it is someone who is clearly as talented as Ari Aster. I, I think that commercialization of the auteur makes it hard for, you know, someone of that, caliber who's in that conversation to make a risky movie to to make choices that are like going to be jarring uh so i hope that i'm happy this movie exists because i, I hope a better ari aster comes out of it but at the end of the day is 
is this the product that I necessarily need to be on the journey for? I don't know, man. I I think I'm glad I saw it, but just because I know what it is. Yeah, I mean, for the experience alone, it's it's kind of worth it. I can't say that I liked it. I like parts of it. I like yeah. I, I like big chunks of it. Obviously, it's a divisive movie. There's a lot of people online who are taking sides, you know, very yeah. quickly in in this polarization of of either this is Ari Aster's Heaven's Gate, Ishtar, you know, failure of a certain kind of magnitude. And it's going to ruin him and it's going to ruin people's careers. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've, I've literally read that. Yeah. Um, and same. then there's people who are on the other side who is like, no, you just don't understand it. And all the worst people online hate this movie, which means I love it. This is why you don't look at film Twitter, because it literally just rots your critical faculties. Ultimately, because it's, it's neither of those things. It, it is. Yeah. It's occasionally interesting. Mm-hmm. It's. I'm glad he, yeah, I'm, I would much rather see a movie that is a mess that the director got to make on his own terms than, you know, a four quadrant focus group driven well, it's, AI it's like, written. How, how often fake do we get non movie? How often do we get the opposite of this movie, right? Where it's this sort right. of indie filmmaker. A tour who's sort of coming into their own and then they get sort of bought up by the studio machine. And, the, you know, you know, like how many cool little horror movie directors have we seen who are, you know, not to I, I enjoy the MCU enough, but sort of get. Well, now you're bought into the MCU or you're bought into this huge studio IP driven thing where they they can't experiment. You know, they're just sort yeah. of on the verge of finding their voice when when they're like, okay, we don't really care about your voice. We just want your style. Make that into this hugely commercial viable product. Absolutely. I don't even think, I think they it, want their style. I think they just want their name. Uh, sure. Kind of. And I, I don't think Ari Aster will do that. Of those three directors we, we mentioned earlier, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, and, and Eggers, um, Peel maybe I could maybe see him like I think he has enough doing clout something that so, he doesn't have to, but I yeah. could see him if it's the right project or the whatever he could maybe end up doing something sort of IP driven, but the other two definitely not. No, um, and, and and I think that's God. what is exciting about them as directors, and ultimately I think is what's the most exciting thing about this movie. Yeah, I agree. So I'm going to give it a C minus because it's really just I found most of it pretty unpleasant, but I am not degrading its artistic accomplishment or its ambition. This is a fucking hard one to grade. Like, how how do you, you know, how how do you grade someone's self-portrait in school? Like, this is how you see yourself. Okay. Um, you know, this is, this is a portrait of Dorian Gray a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's cliche that I'm going to give this thing a, a, a little bit higher of a grade than you. I don't know, man. It, this movie kept pulling me back in just when I thought I was done with it. 
I'll give it a B minus, I guess. I I don't know. That feels fucking wrong in and of itself. I think maybe you're right on the money with a C minus. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'll say this. It's, I've warmed to it a little, even though, you know, I, I probably sound like I'm being fairly critical of it now. No, uh, I, this movie is after fucking watching hard. it. After watching it, I was I was like much more left cold by it than I, thinking about it later. Like a few more, a few days away from it, I actually because I don't feel like I'm like trapped in the theater with this movie yes. that'll never yes. end. Yes, yes, um, no, that that is a great point. Like when you're watching it, you do sort of feel held captive by it, and yeah. it, and it's not pleasant, and uh, it's. But it's also funny and weird. I'll stick with my B minus um, just because I, I've had harder times with movies that are fucking with me more. Um, yeah, I mean, it's likely this will be a movie I think about for the rest of the year. For yeah, sure. Is yeah. it going to end up on my top 10? I highly doubt it. But that also wouldn't surprise me either. If no, that's weird. I, no, I, I Part of me was like, when I watched it, I was like, okay, this might either be in my top 10 or my bottom five. I don't know yet. Because <laughs> uh, that's the thing. This movie is at times both. And, you know, there are there are plenty of movies that are long that I like, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, the director's cut for Midsummer, I think, is only 15 minutes shorter than this. And you don't feel it the same way because that movie is like constantly – has you on like a narrative track. Um, well, and and know, that movie is uh, Seven Samurai is, I think, almost four hours. And that movie is like perfect. Yeah. You know, if it was as focused as Midsommar, then it's not a runtime issue. It's it's a, a embarrassment of ideas. Right. And it's also just that, you know, trying to keep you in the headspace of that type of anxious headspace for that long and sustain mm -hmm. it that long is heavy. It's just, it, it becomes sort of mind numbing after a while. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and move on then to our second review. This is for uh, the film, open your eyes or Abras Los Ojos. This is a Spanish film. It came out in 1997 and starring Penelope Cruz uh, this is written and directed by uh, Alejandro Amenabar, um, who would later go on to make uh, The Others in America. And uh, this film was adapted by Cameron Crowe uh, a couple years later um, in America as the film Vanilla Sky, which was like a very divisive movie at that time. I've seen 10 minutes of Vanilla Sky. Mm-hmm. I watched the trailer after I watched this um, just because I was curious. And man, it looks like exactly the same. Right. It almost was like a shot for shot remake and mm -hmm. or was attempting that. And it uh, I had watched this movie first and then I rented Vanilla Sky and like 10 minutes. And I was like, what's the point? Like, I, I literally just watched this. Yeah. So at some point I will I do want to watch it all the way through just to see some of the how he deals with some of these sequences. And it's just such a weird thing for Cameron Crowe to want to do. 
So this movie uh, stars Eduardo Noriega and Penelope Cruz. Uh, Noriega's character kind of plays this independently wealthy guy who goes out one night at a party and falls in love instantly with this woman, sort of mystery woman played by Penelope Cruz. And while at the same time, he sort of has this other woman in his life who uh, he's not as interested in, but who seems to have some sort of fixation on him. And she's sort of following him around and decides to drive him around one day while they're, uh, while he's too hungover. So he's, uh, she drives them off a cliff uh, with the intent purpose of killing both of them in the car accident. Well, he's he's been trying to, yeah, like blow her off. And, and she's aware that he's into this other woman, uh, this Penelope Cruz character. Right. And when he awakes, he finds that he's been horribly disfigured and he uses every resource that he has available to him to rebuild his face um and they're unable to you know sort of match it perfectly he still has this disfigurement um and you you come to realize really quickly that he has a lot of vanity and in a lot of ways a big part of what this movie is about is Mm -hmm. is difference of life experience based upon being desired and uh pursuing the one who you want to be desired by and Mm -hmm. infatuation and how that works with attraction and, and wealth and all of these other things that he uh, has going for him. But as you know, he gets deeper and deeper into trying to figure out a way to heal himself or come to terms with his new life situation, his world starts to unravel. You know, there is a, uh, a sort of surreal quality to the movie. There's a, a dream motif going throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, identity swapping starts occurring. And we're also kind of going back and forth between these scenarios of him sort of telling the story to a clinician in a prison that he's at. And uh seeing these different sort of versions of events as he's recalling them. And you realize more and more that he's an unreliable narrator and that his version of events might not be what occurred. Mm. That's all I <laughs> oh, okay. feel yeah, yeah. is appropriate to say on, on the subject. Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot left open for interpretation. Yeah. I mean, this movie... This movie deals a lot in dreams and dream logic and uh, dreams as also uh, kind of, you know, the whole idea of simulation theory and, you know, what is reality and, um, you know, can you really tell reality from a, a perfectly crafted simulation? And, you know, what if your own brain is what's creating the, that? Uh, just that kind of philosophical concept of, you know, more real than real and. Right. And and, the idea of like implanted memories. mm -hmm. And there's, there's a little bit of sort of a sci-fi element, I guess you could say in in this movie that, um, or at the very least in question as 
to the uh, the reasons why we're led to believe certain things, even though the movie I don't think is as clear cut as that either. But, you know, if anybody grew up reading Wolverine comics, some of these concepts are like familiar. Um, it, you know, it, it, you have probably seen the movie Inception, um, sure. which yeah. kind of takes some of these concepts and and does sort of, you know, genrefy it and uh, and make it this sort of sci fi conceit. Like there's there's one scene in particular that I was like, oh, <laughs> Nolan kind of ripped that straight from this. Um like the idea of, you know, if the dreamers get a become aware that you're dreaming, like the, the scene in the bar yeah. um, where they all kind of st- stop and stare. Um, it was like almost exactly the way it was portrayed in Inception. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too, how conceptually, yeah, some of this has been lifted. Uh, kind of reminded me of Perfect Blue in that sense. Um you know, the yeah, way I, it kind of influenced Aronofsky with Black Swan. I was like, I can see how this conceptually was sort of genrefied. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of movies that deal in this. Is it real? Is it not real? Some of this stuff feels sort of similar to uh, Philip K. Dick concepts. Sure, yeah. Um, there's a, uh, this kind of plays a lot like a less action oriented version of, um, total recall. Well, and there's, there's also this irony of punishment, right. You know, that, that feels sort of twilight zone you know, this, this very yeah. vain man, uh, gets a new car accident. His face is ruined, you know, like, yeah. Irony to the, just the whole premise that feels very, again, this feels like taking these sort of philosophical concepts and applying them to character genre, drama, uh, and melodrama versus, you know, genrefying it to these sort of sci-fi action things. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, I would say that this fits sort of within the realm of like a neo-noir yeah, kind of. oh, I, I think so. Like, There's less of a crime element to it, but it it plays a lot like that. I mean, you have your femme fatales, you have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, your, uh, your... Unreliable narrator. Yeah, unreliable narrator. You have the, the, the question of identity that keeps popping up and masculinity that's being questioned. You have this and sort of so- criminal backdrop with the, the storytelling, you know, the, the narrative device. Yeah, there's also something kind of gothic about the movie. That you mm-hmm. know, him, him wearing the mask. He even calls himself the Phantom of the Opera at one point. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that was by happenstance. I think that's something they're drawing on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, and it, there's something distinctly European about the movie. Yeah. Um, it it's kind of all those genre tropes or all of those uh pulpier concepts sort of as filtered through european art movie Mm -hmm. um but still i I would say more narrative than not yeah i i actually i was kind of expecting it to be a little weirder to be uh honest like i i felt like it was pretty and maybe 
and maybe it's just sort of the result of you know being filtered through all these sort of what the fuck movies like if this was kind of my first exposure to that i could see being maybe a little more thrown um for someone who's looking for the sort of literal narrative it was easier to parse together than i was expecting yeah i mean it it, it leaves you enough breadcrumbs to to lead you along it leaves some doors open so that you mm. can come to different conclusions. You, and you and can, it doesn't hold your hand the whole way either. Right. In the same way that like two people who had seen Inception can argue, you know, is he still in the dream? Is he yeah. not? You mm -hmm. can have those type of conversations around this movie as well. Um, but I don't think that the movie lives or dies on that. I think it's, it's strong enough as a mystery that you don't need a, I don't know, I didn't need, I shouldn't, you know, the royal we don't need, uh, you know, a pretty bow tied I, I mean, on everything. You're, you're, yes, I felt this, I felt the same way. I was like, you know, this is, it's, for me, it was leaving enough open to interpretation that I was like, oh, ooh, I, you know, that's kind of cool if this isn't that. But, you know, oh, it seems to be that because of such and such evidence. Like, I, you know, I, I enjoy thinking about movies in those terms. And it it leaves enough open uh, to interpretation that you I, I felt like I could still kind of have fun with those philosophical concepts. Um, but I never got I never felt lost in the woods. Right. I really like the filmmaking a lot. Here. Yeah, I mean, I the story is cool. I like that. Um, I like these type of, you know, pulpy Philip K. Dickian um, philosophy through science fiction thing anyway. So that's mm -hmm. not the hard sell. But yeah, I really like the, I mean, you know, Spain's gorgeous. It's just, you know, point yeah. of camera at anything and it, you got a movie. <laughs> Because it's it's yes. it's all there. It's everything in in. I don't know exactly which city they were in, but or they probably used more than one. But um, yeah, the countrysides, the villas, the the uh, the city streets, everything you know is full of personality. This is Penelope Cruz when she was just kind of getting started here, and she's a movie star. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, she's, like, she's immediately just magnetic and lovable and captivating. Like you can absolutely see why someone would, you know, fall in love with her after just sort of hanging out with her for one night. You know, she's yeah. charming and beautiful. Like why well, she becomes a sort of idealized thing. Yeah. Fantasy. It, it's kind of funny because um I was actually actively thinking about that before, again, before uh, reality is spun on its head of I'm like, exactly. She's this sort of fantasy woman. And I was immediately aware of that, but not aware that they were doing that on purpose. And, you know, as the movie unfolds, it's like, oh, got it. Like, yeah. No, yeah, Penelope not. Cruz is one of the most interesting actresses 
because she's movie star beautiful mm-hmm. in a very classic kind of way. Um, but she she never took like the easy path that somebody like that could have. You know, it would have been very easy for her at a certain point in her career to just do the romantic comedies or just do uh you know the the sexy secretary role or whatever it might have been during her heyday but mm-hmm. you know and she did stuff in America and she made films in in Spain and Mexico uh all at the same time and i think her work with here and her work with uh Pedro Almodovar they especially Almodovar i think really sort of used found her as sort of a muse to sort of paint whatever world they want onto her that she's mm-hmm. she's it's like perfect canvas to to use in all of these interesting ways throughout her career and um yeah i think she kind of starts out like this sort of heaven on earth angel in a way that's you know you there's this, this there's a read of the movie that there's some misogyny here um well but but here's the thing the way the movie's framed like that makes yeah. sense that makes sense for the story and, and, and that's for the character yeah and that's kind of what i was was saying was like when you're first introduced to her she's so lovable and so perfect that it's like oh okay like this is the uh not manic pixie dream girl because it's a little more um but you know the a sim a similar formulation right and but that makes sense that makes yeah. sense when you realize like what's actually happening here is is this you know it, it, it's not this character it's an interpretation of the character and of course that's how she would be perceived like narratively that actually works better if there's a little bit of this internalized misogyny exactly i mean the the whole point of the character you know is is this this constant sort of questioning of his masculinity and his worth of as a person by way of his his physical appearance or his wealth or his whatever mm-hmm. Absolutely. and every, everybody he, he... around him and everything in his world is sort of just a reflection of that yeah um so yeah i really like this movie a lot i think if you have not seen it before to see it um if you've seen vanilla sky but haven't seen this movie i don't know how it would play because like i said i tried it the other way and i was well it's funny because as i was watching this i was a i think it's very interesting that they got penelope cruz to be in the um to be in vanilla sky to be in the adaptation well, um, she was already at that point had a career and I think wasn't wasn't that the time period that, she was with Tom Cruise? Yeah, yeah. I this was yeah. like this was like from what I understand. Um, I could be widely off base here. This is just all what I've heard through you know rumor and conjecture. But from what I understand, Vanilla Sky was kind of a uh, uh, Scientology uh, setup to to get them together. 
based off of his attraction towards her. But again, all very unsubstantiated what I'm saying here. Um, but I still think it's interesting that. I mean, you know what it felt like to me? It felt like when it, when I tried to watch Vanilla Sky, it felt like what it was like watching the Spike Lee remake of Old Boy, where it's like, mm. why yeah. the the the, is... the original has the juice, like just yeah, and it's so culturally specific, and it it just mm-hmm. this just feels weird in a way that isn't intentional. Yeah, yeah, I I. I have not tried to watch the Spike Lee old boy, but I get what you're saying. Like, like it, it's such a just let the movie be the movie, you know, In instead of remaking it, why not redistribute it? Why not? You know what I mean? It, it, take this movie that exists and make an American audience for it versus again, I have not seen Vanilla Sky, but based off the preview is like, it just kind of feels like plagiarism, you know? Right. I mean, I, I don't know. I, there, It is interesting that Tom Cruise was in that movie playing that role at that time. Yeah. Um, because especially once you get into the, into the more sci-fi element of it and the, the, you know, the company that wants to like extend life and, they're, you know, they even use the word cult and, you know, it's like, doesn't feel far off from uh, something like a Scientology. Totally. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's worth looking at. I should try again or something. But, uh, but yeah, this movie, Open Your Eyes, I like a lot. And if you've seen um, the others, which is a very different kind of movie altogether um, the, you, the, you yeah. can see other than his fascination with the gothic um the you can see you can see the talent a, and i think the storytelling unfolds in a similar way right the others if you haven't seen it has this kind of twist ending but the way the elements unfold in that movie it, even if you're aware of the twist you can like see all the connection points and i i think this movies kind of similar and and it's the kind of storytelling that i think informs future viewings versus you know my big criticism of something like the sixth sense was it hinges so much on the twist uh i i feel like these are more like these reveals of stuff that is there versus a gotcha moment yeah because this movie is um ever twisting (laughs) yeah I, I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I was expecting when you, you know, told me it was this Spanish thriller from the 90s. I was like, OK, this could go a few ways. Um, uh, but I ended up in uh, yeah, pretty engrossed by it. Cool. All right. And what movie did you want to have us do for the next episode? Um, I've actually wanted to watch this movie for a long time. I've been saving it for the podcast. I want to watch The Duelists, uh, Ridley Scott's first feature-length movie uh, starring uh, Keith Carradine and Harvey Keitel. Uh, Yeah, it hasn't been available streaming for free in a way that we normally try to do for the podcast, but it is currently available on Pluto TV. 
the duelists from 1977. Yeah. And, uh, we, we, should have said uh, before we launched in Open Your Eyes that that is playing on Amazon, but through the their company Freebie. So you can either log into your Prime account and watch it that way, or watch it on Freebie.com. Freebie is a, it's like Pluto, it's like Tubi, it's all of these these uh, catalog titles that are easy to get. And yeah, I mean, they're all really cool if you're looking for, you know, weird old things. Um, so always <laughs> well, take a look because you never fun. know what's in there. And uh, you, you find interesting stuff, although you do have to watch a lot of um, pharmacy ads and things like that. All right. Well, if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies we talked about in this episode or previous you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com you can also follow us on our social media at twitter and instagram we're also on tiktok now um i'm kind of still on letterbox but i kind of keep forgetting we have one uh so yeah if you want to follow us on any of those platforms it's a good way to kind of keep up with what we're doing and be sure to leave a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. And you can follow me individually at VC Cassidy over on Twitter and Instagram. You can also read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment, and that'll pull up the archives. And be sure to read the other articles and uh, content by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Um, Also, if you're in the San Diego area, come check out uh, my improv show, Improv vs. Stand-Up, which is performs uh, every Saturday at Mockingbird Improv. You can follow both of those if you're interested on uh, Instagram at Mockingbird Improv and at Improv versus Standup. Okay. And that is the end of the episode. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Bye.